The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Some stories need very little introduction because of their unmissable drama. My personal list from the Old Testament would have to include David and Goliath and the fall of Jericho. In the New Testament, among the many I'd highlight is like Jesus walking on the water, just the drama of that story. And of course, the resurrection. One of my all-time favorites, though, is in the book of Acts, the story of, the, of Paul's shipwreck that we're going to get to eventually in chapter 27. But without a doubt, an episode that Luke relates in our passage today needs little introduction for those with even a passing familiarity with this book. All you need to do to call it to mind is name the protagonists. It's hard to forget Ananias and Sapphira, if you're at all acquainted with them. This story is beyond dramatic. It's shocking. It's disturbing, perplexing, unsettling. It's so dramatic that it can jump off the page, leaving us with a bag of questions and no sense of context. Yet this account is best understood in its place in the wider narrative because Luke isn't simply telling us a scary story, you know? He's not just trying to tell this startling and scandalous story. He's presenting a powerful contrast as he continues to describe for our benefit the life of the early church. So, with no more than this little introduction and this invitation, try as best you can to listen to this story as if for the first time. Let's read our text. This is Acts 4:32 to 5:11. This is God's holy word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was, called, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. How is church today? I know if you happen to get asked that today, you can tell, you know, by a friend or relative, you can tell them that, well, you know, they welcomed new members and then the pastor preached about a couple in the book of Acts who died in church. Now, I'm pretty sure that the church growth gurus would tell me, would tell us, and, you know, that, you know, if you're going to choose passages for a new member's Sunday, maybe this one is not the one you want to choose. <laughs> this shouldn't be high up on your list. Admittedly, I can see how, you know, this would be a great way to discourage anybody else from joining. You know, sure, join our church. People die. You know? <laughs> Yet in God's providence and with the adjustments we've had to make over the past few weeks, we arrive at this text today, at, arrive at this text today of all days. And having studied it, I'm confident that God means to serve us through this text, particularly as we celebrate our continued growth as a local church. How was church today? Imagine being asked that question as a member of the Jerusalem church on the day when Ananias and Sapphira died. I mean, it, it, it's bad enough that once the gathering was interrupted by somebody dropping dead, but twice? I'm sure the fear that this passage speaks of would have been printed on their faces as they headed home. So the first question anybody would have been asking them is, what happened to you? Up to this point, Luke's portrait of the internal life of the community of believers in Jerusalem in the first few months of their existence has been positively glorious. That's still the case as chapter 4 closes. As we saw at the start of chapter 4, trouble from the outside has begun to brew. But among the disciples, it sounds like a paradise of heartfelt unity, powerful mission, and familial generosity. But this picture of paradise is suddenly shattered by the deaths Luke reports here in chapter 5. Death in paradise? I'm borrowing the title for this sermon from a British crime comedy series that tells the stories of murders on the fictional Caribbean island of Saint-Marie. Particularly to our British audience, you know, of course, living in a temperate uh, climate, sunny scenes from an island in the Caribbean shore look like paradise. But as the story plays out, it proves not to be the case. Similarly for us, Luke's portrayal of the church at the beginning of Acts can feel like paradise. I mean, you think to yourself, oh, to be in a church like that. Everything seems so perfect. But Luke did not write this book as a tourism brochure for the church. So he does not shy away from telling the bad and the ugly alongside the good. In our text, we're confronted by contrasting scenes. First, we have a thoroughly positive picture of the community, exemplified by the generosity of Barnabas. But this is followed by the tragic tale of the deception and judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. So we're going to tackle this text in two scenes, just as it is given to us. So first, our, our first act then, great grace and generosity. And then second, grave deception and judgment. 
Our passage picks up the action following the prayer meeting Luke records in verses 23 to 31 of chapter 4. You can look back at that in your text. After Peter and John's run in with the rulers, elders, and scribes, the whole church gathered and cried out to the sovereign Lord for grace to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 31 records God's response to their prayers. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I would hope and trust that the shaking they experienced was not nearly as unsettling as the shaking we experienced this past week. In their case, it was a demonstration of the power of God as he filled them all again with the Holy Spirit. The result, as the verse notes, was continued boldness in their witness, despite the threats of the authorities. What we also need to recognize, though, is that Luke is linking everything that follows in our text with the power of the Spirit. Think about what Luke summarizes in verses 32 and 33. A union of hearts and minds that encompasses everyone. I mean, you can join a service club or even a parachurch organization and work on important projects or ministry initiatives with people, but, not, but may not... Or, or, but may or may not experience anything approaching the real friendship and genuine mutual concern that Luke describes here. While verse 31 focuses on how the filling of the Spirit empowered them for a shared gospel mission, they shared much more in the gospel than a mission. Acts speaks of Christians in several ways. The identifier in verse 32, those who believed, helps to deliver us from cultural Christianity that claims faith in Jesus without a commitment to a community of fellow believers. All of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, with their unity expressed visibly and tangibly. There were no lone ranger, free-floating believers in Jerusalem who conceived of themselves as being deployed in mission in such a way that sanctioned casual and occasional relationships with other believers. That cannot be what being of one heart and one soul means. Surely it means to be deeply known, at least by some, and to know some others deeply. That combination of heart and mind is a weighty one when you think about the Old Testament background. In the Old Testament, the two are often brought together to describe the commitment, passion, and devotion that we should have towards God in the context of being commanded to love him. It makes perfect sense that that, kind, that that is the kind of commitment we should have towards loving others. By using similar language, Luke is connecting this summary description of the day-to-day -day life of the local church to the one that he gave in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Here in chapter 4, he is echoing and amplifying particular traits. The accent falls on their extraordinary concern for one another, expressed in sacrificial generosity. The unity of this community wasn't just a matter of what they said. So, you know, this, this morning our new members made verbal commitments. But the unity of this community has, went beyond that. So, it, it was a matter also of how they held what they owned. Now, I need to reiterate what we said in considering the summer in chapter 2. This description does not mean that they abandoned the idea of private possessions. The, that's most obvious when Peter confronts Ananias in a few verses. This sharing was voluntary, not obligatory. It's that they saw what was theirs as not belonging to them for their own benefit, but as God's gracious provision so that they could care for others in this new family. 
Acts continues to give us some wonderful opportunities to consider what it means and what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. It's helping us to recognize that the Spirit who is given by Jesus to all those who believe the gospel can and desires to fill us over and over again. That's really important because sometimes when people teach on the Spirit, they emphasize an initial experience of the Spirit. And then we de-emphasize the fact that God wants the Spirit to fill us again and again. But far from conceiving spiritfulness in an individualistic way, in, in other words, how the Spirit makes me special or powerful or gives me discernment for my life, Luke focuses on how the Spirit makes us one. Let's pursue the fullness of the Spirit that leads to unity and generosity. Let's pray for God to fill us with His Spirit, but in doing so, let's pray for the priorities of the Spirit to transform and unite our hearts. Look at verse 33 in your text. It's fascinating to me that sandwiched between descriptions of mutual care, of the the mutual care of this local church, Luke speaks again of their commitment to mission led by the apostles. I mean, it's not like he didn't just mention this in verse 31. So why say it again? For one, he's underscoring the apostles as the leaders of God's new community, empowered by his spirit to do exactly what Jesus had commissioned them to do, with the whole community grace to follow their lead. This is important particularly because the apostles, I mean, remember the setting, the apostles are now in conflict with the leaders in Jerusalem. This is a big deal. The leaders of Judaism had been established by the Old Testament law. So here come these new guys, new guys on the block. And the leaders are like, no, 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 you guys need to shut this thing down. And they're like, look, should we obey God or you? So what we're seeing now is God's hand confirming that these are his men as they are working powerfully. Uh, in front of the whole of Jerusalem. So the leadership of the old covenant is clashing with the leadership of the new, and God is endorsing the new leadership. But I think there are also a couple of ways in which Luke, uh, in, in which what Luke does here serves us. I came to Christ at a very early age, and throughout my time in several churches growing up, I've watched churches and Christians struggle to hold the priorities of gospel community and gospel mission together. I've struggled with that myself. I've definitely found community community to be much more of a natural fit for me. And honestly, at times, I've kind of wondered, okay, am I sort of like a community specialist and then other people should be like mission specialists? On the flip side, I've, I've interacted with other people who warm to mission, but for one reason or another, struggle with the discomforts of community. Sometimes even churches, based on their leaders, tendencies, and dominant gifts, appear to tend primarily to one or the other. I think the way Luke has shaped this summary helps us to recognize that we cannot divorce gospel community and gospel witness. Let me say it again. We cannot divorce, we cannot separate gospel community and gospel witness. Mutual care and mission, properly understood, are not a reflection of our comfort, preferences, or strengths. They are the work of God's Spirit and a product of His grace as He shapes the people of God with the priorities of Christ. What that means is that instead of leaning into our strengths, we need to actually lean into our weaknesses, knowing that His grace is sufficient for us and His power is made perfect in our weakness. A second thing is this. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus was not just the content of their message. It was the reality that was rearranging their priorities. So track with me. 
The resurrection means that there's a life beyond this one. It means that the kingdom has been inaugurated and is coming in fullness. Joyful belief in that reality freed these Christians to go against the grain of this world that prioritizes personal comfort and acquisition of assets. The resurrection is the basis not only for the boldness in mission that we see uh, exhibited in them in the face of threats, but the generosity with possessions in the face of eternity. I'd also like to note this. The reality of the resurrection which transforms us into a beautiful community compels us to witness about Jesus. If you're not a believer, you might admire some things about healthy churches, but wonder why in this day and age Christians are so obnoxious to continue to tell people that they need to believe in Jesus and insist that they must trust in him. But what I'd want you to understand is that the same truth that creates the values you admire, and uh, uh, the same truth creates the values you admire and the message you'd rather avoid. The grace you see in us is the grace that we proclaim to you. It's not, uh, it's not one way to live among many others. Jesus' resurrection shows that he is Lord and Christ, reigning over all, the only one in whom there is salvation and the forgiveness of sins. If you trust in him today, we'd be glad to show you how to, to learn to follow him. So please don't hesitate to speak to me or Sheldon or Sean after the service. There are a couple of things that I think are worth noting about the generosity expressed in the Jerusalem church. Look at verse 34, just for a second. It says, there was not a needy person among them. Luke is depicting this scene with the Old Testament as a backdrop. That phrase comes from Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 and 5. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. God's promises that had never been fulfilled under the old covenant because of Israel's selfishness and disobedience were being fulfilled now through the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit who as promised was writing God's laws on the hearts of his people. That passage in Deuteronomy goes on to describe how those who are better off economically were to provide relief for their poorer brothers. This is exactly what we see in the Jerusalem church. As often as needs came to light, the richer brothers and sisters would sell their assets and bring the proceeds to the apostles for the leaders to distribute to the needy. Luke highlights a brother named Joseph as an exemplar of this pattern. Obviously there were others, but Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, is actually going to play a really important role in this story that Luke is telling. So he's taking this opportunity to introduce him in the context of his generous heart and to point out how he came to prominence in the community through selfless generosity. The thing we're going to find as we journey together as a church is that God's grace is going to produce praiseworthy examples right here among us. Whether they are those who serve tirelessly or give generously or show consistent hospitality, let us be grateful for and not jealous of the examples in our midst. That's going to be important as we go along. Let's thank God for them and seek to imitate them as much as we are able. Now, the chapter break here between 4 and 5 is unfortunate. See, I've found that when I read the Bible, chapter breaks tend to form a partition in my mind. And I think, okay, that's done. Let me move on to something new. But chapter 5 begins with, but. 
Luke is about to tell us about a contrast to the unity, generosity, and example we've just seen. The delight we've been feeling as we've looked at this generous and united community evaporates quickly as this tale unfolds. This ranks right up there with several other genuinely terrifying moments in the Bible. The severity of God's response helps us to see how serious the sin on display here is. Let's look at this story of grave deception and judgment. Yes, grave. I did say grave. Yes, I should have said pun intended. You see what I did there? So look at verses 1 and 2 in your text. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So if this were a TV series, this would be the point at which the music starts changing from that kind of hopeful, grand celebration to ominous. Just a signal that this is going down. This is going bad. Like Barnabas, this couple also sold a piece of property and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. But they only brought some of what they received for the sale. But here's the question. Why was that a problem? I mean, it wasn't necessarily a problem. When Peter questions Ananias, he points out that they didn't have to bring all the money. The land belonged to them, and so did the profits they received from selling it. So what was the issue then? The verb used to describe their keeping back a part of the money is used elsewhere in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to theft or misappropriation. Most commentators note that the use of this particular verb connects this story with the Old Testament story of Achan, who stole some of the spoils of war from Jericho that God had told the army to completely destroy and then lied about them, lied about it. Sorry, it's got weird. <laughs> if that's a connection that Luke wants us to make, what he's suggesting then about this incident is that this one, like that one, involves sin that was not just personal, but against the community. But how could Ananias and Sapphira steal from the proceeds of property that belonged to them? John Stott helps us to read between the lines. We have to assume, therefore, that before the sale, Ananias and Sapphira had entered into some kind of agreement to give the total amount raised to the church. Because of this, when they brought only some instead of all, they were guilty of fraud. When Ananias brought the money to Peter, the apostle confronted him with questions that revealed that Peter, surely because of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly what was going on. In confronting him, Peter mentions the fraud, but focuses on the attempt at deception. It would be profitable at this point for us to connect Peter's opening question with his closing statement. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. There's a lot right there. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. This is a very significant affirmation of the deity and personhood of the Holy Spirit. In equating lying to the Holy Spirit with lying to God, Peter is not making an argument for the deity of the Holy Spirit. I have no idea what's going on here. Sorry. Oh, right. 
Yeah, this got messed up badly. So in making that equation, Peter is not making an argument here for the deity of the Holy Spirit. He's actually making an offhand comment affirming the fact. He's confronting Ananias with the truth that he tried to lie to God. And once again, what we're seeing here is that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal abstraction of God's power. That would make the Spirit a thing. You can't lie to a thing. But you can lie or attempt to lie to a person. But do you see the massive problem here? Ananias did not come into the church that day and lay the money at the Holy Spirit's feet. He presented it to the apostles. So if anything, Ananias lied to them, right? Mind you, this wasn't merely an attempt to get one by the leaders. He was attempting to deceive the whole church. However these benevolent contributions were made, it's clear from the case of Barnabas and the reputation for generosity that he gained that the church at large was aware of those who were giving. But even with the recognition that Ananias was trying to deceive the community, how is this a lie to the Holy Spirit? The scholar Eckhard Snabel suggests this. Lying to the community of believers is always lying to the Holy Spirit, who is God's presence in the community. Now, that's very heavy. But is that really the case? Yeah, that's, yeah you have the right question, sir. So I was thinking about this, and I'm reading all of these guys writing about this, and I'm like, I don't know if this is coming together for me. And then I remember the story in Acts chapter 9. In Acts 9, we meet Saul, the persecutor of the church, on the road to Damascus, on his way to continue his badness, and he meets the risen Christ. Just like Peter does here to Ananias, Jesus himself confronts Saul with a question about his sin. So this is Acts 9, 4 to 5. I'm completely lost. Okay, all right. Okay, right. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So follow the connection here. Jesus regarded Paul's persecution of his people as a personal attack. Paul was not merely persecuting the church. He was persecuting Jesus. In the same way, the Holy Spirit regarded Ananias' lie as a personal offense. The Spirit is so connected to God's people that he takes sins against them personally. Ananias was not merely lying to the community. He was lying to the Holy Spirit. When Ananias heard what Peter said, he collapsed and died instantly. Luke does not tell us the cause of death. Peter did not pronounce a curse on him. But the nature of his death makes it clear that this was the judgment of God. And the news of his death and the circumstances surrounding it spread quickly. And all who heard were seized with great fear. Though Jewish burials were done on the same day, this seemed to have been a particularly hasty burial. There was, of course, no need for a doctor's pronouncement or a death certificate in those times. Normally, though, the family would have been informed first. But it seems that they were eager to quickly remove and bury the remains of one who had died such a death. One person who did not hear the news was Sapphira. She, for her part, turns up at the meeting place three hours later. It seems that she was aware that her husband brought the gift to present to the apostles. Did you sell the land for this price? 
Peter's direct question to her was an opportunity. Would she tell the truth or would she own the lie? When she confirmed the fraudulent amount, she made it clear that she was a willing participant in the conspiracy. <laughs> Since you said that, I'm going to say something that's not in my script. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah, because I was wondering whether I should include this. So I was invited to, to, to lead a marriage seminar the other day, uh, which I actually had to refuse for circumstances. But the theme was teamwork. And so I'm sitting there thinking about, all right, how do I... Can I engage with this theme of teamwork? Now, you guys know me well. I hate themes. I just love to work. I, I want to start with the scripture and work forward. So now I'm trying to work from a theme back to scripture. And I'm like, what are good examples of teamwork in marriage in the Bible? And I thought, Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, they are perfectly in sync, aren't they, Sarah? I mean, if this was his idea, she was going along with it. And it demonstrates the problem with teamwork that's godless. So... For those who are married, recognize that you can make agreements within your marriage that deeply displease God and offend him. And it looks like you're doing well. It looks like you're on the same page, in sync, getting things done. And God is like, no, that's not what I want. So this is why wives are called to submit to their husband in the Lord. The way you serve your husband as a wife when he's displeasing God is say, honey, that's wrong. And I'm not going with you with that. Right? So, this is the example we don't follow. Okay, so back to my script. <laughs> There's a difference here with Sapphira's death. This time, Peter actually prophesies her impending death. Perhaps recognizing that in choosing to partner with her husband in his sin, she made the choice to share his fate. But before that pronouncement, he identifies their sin as testing the spirit of the Lord. Their actions arrogantly called into question whether the spirit was present among, whether the spirit that was present among them was truly holy. Was God really governing his church? I mean, there's been forgiveness of sins, so isn't this a free-for-all? You know, our sins are forgiven, so can't we just do what we want? Schnabel explains, they believed that they could behave in a manner clearly not sanctioned by God and get away with it. Sapphira, like her husband three hours before her, collapsed and died. And the young men returned, probably thinking their work was over, to realize, you have got to be kidding me. Would you? And so they took up her remains and buried her beside her husband. And once again, great fear gripped the whole church and everyone else who heard the story of these deaths. Let's lift the lid and dig onto this a little bit. What was the temptation that Ananias and Sapphira gave into? We know that Satan tempted them to lie, but lying was the action, not the goal. I mean, think about the lies we tell. We lie for a reason, don't we? We lie because we want to protect something or something like that. So what were they after? Luke does not offer us that kind of analysis, but he sure leaves a lot of breadcrumbs for us to follow. He speaks of what this couple did in language almost identical to how he speaks of what Barnabas did. It seems reasonable to recognize that they were not truly trying to do what Barnabas did, but to get what Barnabas got. Think about this. This church has how many people, at least by now? This is 
over 8,000 people. Barnabas has a nickname given to him by the apostles. Are you serious? This guy named Joseph, people are calling him Barnabas because the apostles said, hey, Barnabas. I mean, he's getting rep and recognition. You know, Barnabas is walking around and people are like, it's Barnabas. That's how I paid my school fee. That's what's going on here, you know. Schnabel is insightful once more. Ananias appears to think in secular categories of gaining honor, prestige, and influence through benefaction, which impresses people if real sacrifice has been made and the donation is impressive. John Stott adds this. They wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So here's where this connects with our own hearts. Family, beware of any desire that tempts you to present yourself as something you are not. Particularly the desire for, pra of, for praise from others. When we deceive our brothers and sisters by putting on a face or a facade to conceal who we truly are or to appear to be what we are not, we are lying to the Holy Spirit. We must learn to treat such desires as toxic because they are. As Stott points out, falsehood ruins friendship. So let's dig a little bit further. When you are talking to people at church and telling your stories, when you are in small group and it's time to share things, do you feel that little temptation to make yourself look good? To do PR? When you are, you know, when you, for those who are married, when you are talking about your marriage, do you feel that temptation to make it seem so perfect? To make your spouse seem so wonderful? To make, you know, it seem like a paradise? Instead of the willingness to, not necessarily go into detail, but acknowledge who you really are and what you're really struggling with. Think about social media, which wires us to perform. When you present yourself on social media, is that really the person you are? Is that who you really are? Or is that what you're presenting to get the likes and to get the comments and the compliments? Look, this root runs deep in our hearts and we need to be aware of it. During my internship, I participated in a church planting cohort with four other pastors who are preparing to head to different parts, in this case of the states, and to plant churches. So we met for weekend training over a period of a little more than a year on, on a number of occasions. I'll never forget one of those Sundays. We were walking together, and we're now in downtown Philly walking together. We had had breakfast, and we were heading for the church that we were visiting that morning. And the conversation turned to a particular pastor in Sovereign Grace Churches who was well known for his brilliance and his academic legacy. I mean, this guy literally had written documents that were left behind for the rest of us PC students. One of the guys started sharing anecdotes about that pastor. And at a point, as we were crossing a road, he almost stopped in the middle of the road to ask for forgiveness. He confessed that he was only telling those stories to play up his closeness to that particular person in order to impress us. What shocked me was that he seemed they could have stopped telling stories. I mean, as simple as that. You know, the spirit convicts you that, hey, you're being proud right now. And you just, you just stopped doing it. There was no external compulsion to confess his sin of self-promotion to us. But he took what the spirit revealed to him in that moment very seriously. So seriously that he was willing to now reveal who he really was rather than simply just conceal his sin. 
Ironically, in that moment, our admiration for him grew. As he embodied, what he embodied for me in that moment is what it means to have a deep regard for the holiness of the Spirit and the fellowship that we enjoy as believers. There are a couple of things I want you to notice about this passage as a whole. There's there's a fascinating contrast that, that Luke makes here. He's contrasting the filling of the Spirit with when Satan filled Ananias' heart. The effect of the filling of the Spirit is unity and selfless generosity, and we see that in chapter 4. So those filled with the Spirit exhibit the character of the Spirit. In chapter 5, we see that when Satan filled Ananias' heart, he exhibited the character of Satan. What came out was lies and self-promotion. But recognize that in both stories, the Holy Spirit was powerfully at work. Again, the language helps us to see this. There's this repetition of great. In chapter 4, the Spirit's work manifests in great power and great grace in this community. In chapter 5, his work leads to great fear coming upon the whole church. How should we understand this fear? The ESV Study Bible concisely explains, fear in, in response to manifestation of God's presence involves both reverent awe and a healthy fear of God's displeasure and discipline. Friends, let's cultivate the fear of God in our community. Let's cultivate the fear of God in our community. May we never be casual or flippant about displeasing God. You should be aware of how easy that can creep into our hearts and our behaviors. Oh, oh, I'll ask for forgiveness later. You know them way there? May we never be casual about displeasing God. And if any of us is, may we love each other enough to patiently, soberly, and humbly confront and question each other about such sin. We can be joyful in the Lord without disregarding his holiness. Our humor does not need to be irreverent. It seemed apparent that Ananias and Sapphira did not understand the ramifications of the presence of the Holy Spirit in and among his church. But do we understand those? Friends, this is a difficult passage. But it actually contributes much to shaping us into a loving and holy local church. Daryl Bach helps us to reckon with the grave judgment we've witnessed. This judgment indicates how serious sin is to God and how gracious God is in often deferring such judgment. Most sin is not treated so harshly, but at this early stage, such a divine act serves to remind the community of its call to holiness and its loyalty to God. God sees and knows all. Sin is dealt with directly. The resulting fear that the judgment creates is exactly what the the passage seeks to engender. Respect for God and for righteousness, as well as a recognition that sin is destructive and dangerous. Today we have witnessed two scenes from the life of the early church that could hardly be more contrasting. The first is euphoric. Who would not smile at the beauty of the unity and solidarity of this church, bound together in mutual care and mission? The second is unsettling. Who would not gasp at the swift and final judgment meted out to this unfortunate couple, united in their desire to deceive and gain admiration? But what we must ensure that we witness in these scenes is the heart and hand of God. If we see all of the human activity and the qualities and the outcomes we would want to emulate or avoid and miss what God is doing, we'd be missing the point. 
Underneath the exemplary generosity of Barnabas and in the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, God is revealing himself and his heart for his people. So this is what it comes down to. God graces the church for mutual care and mission and governs her for holiness. This is our God. This is how he works. He graces the church for mutual care and mission and governs her for holiness. That is what was true then and is no less true now. Just as he did then, God gathered us, gathers us into a local church and is at work transforming us into a family that reflects the traits of the Holy Spirit, not the ways of Satan and our own selfish desires. He has called us to be holy and empowers and disciplines us for holiness by the presence and power of his Spirit. Becoming this kind of holy community, one that is generous with the gospel and our possessions, is not natural or easy. Our awareness of our weaknesses and wounds, our inclinations and temptations, should help us to see how desperately we need to lean in to the work of the Holy Spirit and to encourage the fear of God among us. God is invested in the unity and holiness of his people. He's raising us as his children to pursue the family business. May his grace empower us to embrace the priorities and the purity that he desires in this local church. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.